Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Last week we started on this journey of understanding what it means to advance the gospel. We are looking at this theme of advancing the gospel, trusting His provision. It's our capital stewardship campaign. And as I said, in a few weeks, we will gather at NJC and and prayerfully think about what God would be leading us to participate in this journey. And last week, we spent time building the foundation saying it's not about a building. It's not about necessarily paying down the debt. What it's really about is advancing the gospel. And we saw that the gospel is the most important message we could ever share. It's the most important thing that we could ever tell anybody. It has inherent power. And we go as a church to advance the gospel, not only here in northeastern Colorado, but we go around the world to the utter ends of the world to advance this gospel. And so what we're asking the church to be praying about is to, is to give above and beyond their tithes for the next three years so that we can be freed up. We won't have the debt on this building to be able to continually do what God has called us to do, and that is advancing the gospel. Now the second half of that statement, advancing the gospel, trusting his provision. There's two words in the second half of our campaign theme, trust and provision. We are going to have to trust God and have brave faith and exercise faith and and trust that God will meet our needs. And then the word provision, as you heard from Mike, God has provided in the past. Many of you that have been in this church for many years can give testimony of how God has provided for you in the past, how God has provided for you in the present, and how God will continue to provide for you for our needs. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to challenge us by addressing the issue of giving. And anytime a pastor stands up and says, oh no, we're going to talk about giving, people automatically think he's going to talk about money. Yes, a little bit. Next week, I'm going to talk more about money, but really what I'm going to talk about are three words, because it's a whole lot more than just money. It really goes to the heart of who we are as Christians. Now let me give you these three words. Stewardship, sacrifice, and service. They all start with S. Stewardship, sacrifice, and service. And those are kind of scary words when you think about it. What's he really talking about when he talks about stewardship? What does it mean to sacrifice? What does it mean to to serve? And so what I want to do this morning is to try to show you biblically what these words mean. So here's the big issue for this morning. Here's the big topic. Here's the big ticket item. This is where we're going. Stewards, and we're explaining what that word means. Stewards serve God sacrificially by giving of their time and their talents through the power of the gospel. Stewards serve God by sacrificially giving of their time and their talents. Now, next week, we're going to look at treasures. Today, we're just looking at time and talents. Next week, we'll look at, at the money issue. But I think I want to, what I want to do this morning is lay a foundation for stewardship. That's a word we don't use a lot. When you think of steward, sometimes you think of a stewardess on an airline. We don't even use that term anymore. They're called flight attendants. What is a steward? 
Well, what I want to do this morning is I want to give four overarching issues related to stewardship that I think will help us understand this topic more, more carefully. So if you've got your Bible, let's turn to Matthew 25. We're going to start in verse 14. This is a very popular parable. You've probably heard this parable many times before. But what it's going to teach us, first of all, the first overarching issue that we're going to look at this morning is an illustration of stewardship. An illustration of of stewardship and we see it illustrated here in this parable that jesus gives us the parable of the talent so let's read this together matthew 25 14 through 30 for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property to one he gave five talents to another two and to another one to each according to his ability then he went away He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And also he who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sowed and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at the coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, at first glance, this seems like a pretty easy to understand parable. Jesus is equating the kingdom of God with the man a landowner, a rich man that goes off on a journey and he entrusts his servants with talents. Now, when we think of talents, what do we normally think of? Gifts, abilities like a talent show, gifted or talented. That's not what the word means here. It's the Greek word talenton. It's where we get the word talent transliterated into the English. It was the highest known denominational currency in the Roman Empire. As a matter of fact, it would be equivalent to three hundred thousand dollars so one talent equals three hundred thousand dollars and in that culture it took about 20 years to make that much money and it may take that much money in our culture to make that much money too that much time so three hundred thousand dollars so this is not a small lump of change and so we look at the story the master says okay i'm going to give to one guy three hundred thousand dollars times five one guy three hundred thousand dollars times two one guy i'm just going to give him the three hundred thousand dollars five talents two talents and one talent 
But what I want you to notice, what's very, very important about this parable, is in verse 15. You get the key to the parable, the key interpretive message here. At the end of verse 15, it says, to each according to his ability. That's the key there. Each person was given according to their ability. In other words, the master knew that each servant had a different ability, a different competency, a different investment strategy. He knew that not all of them were were equal in their ability to produce wealth. And that's the way it is today. And I'm thankful for that because most of us here, yours truly, are pretty average, aren't we? We're pretty average. Most of us here are pretty average. And what God expects us to do is to be good stewards with what He alone has given to us. We don't have to compare ourselves with the person next to us. We don't have to compare ourselves to somebody that may be bigger or better or whatever we appear in our minds to think that they are. God has given to each of us what He expects for us to do. Now here's the issue. God is sovereign over the giftings. God is sovereign over your time. God is sovereign over your talents, your abilities. God is sovereign over your finances. He alone chooses how that comes about. You can't control that. You can't control how God blesses you. The one thing you can control is how are you going to be a good servant, a good steward of what God has given you. So it's comforting to know that you don't have to compare yourselves with others. It's each according to your own ability. God has given you, God has given all of us, time, talents, and treasures, maybe at different levels, but he's in charge of that. The point is, are we good stewards of what he's given us? And so, what's the story here? We know how the story works. The first guy does what? He goes and invests his money, and he gets a great return. The master comes back and says, good job. You've invested the money. You did a great job. You, 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 I entrusted you with, a lot, with very little. I'm going to give you more responsibility. Enter into the joy of your master. The guy that was given the two talents, the same thing. He went and invested his money, got a great return. The master was happy. What about the third guy? How does the third servant respond? He's a little embarrassed, isn't he? He's a little scared. He begins to question the master. He he begins to question the character of the master. He says, Master, I knew that you were a, a hard man there in verse 24. I knew that you were a hard man. I knew that you were a mean guy. I knew that that I needed to be afraid of you, and I didn't want to take the risk. It would have been better for me to just keep the money, go hide it in a hole, than to take the risk and to go try to invest it, because at least I can give you back what you gave me. And the manager says, no, that's not what I asked you to do. I asked you to take the gift that I'd given you, to take the talent I've given you, to take the money I've given you, and to take a risk to use it, to be wise, to be a good steward. And he says, you've been lazy. You've been slothful. Literally, that word means you, you've shrunk back. You've, you've hesitated. You haven't invested my money. There's no profit. There's no, there's no yield. And so the first thing that we see this morning is just an illustration of stewardship, each according to his own ability. But deeper than the illustration, number two, really where we hit, well, the rubber hits the road is this. It's the motivation for stewardship. What's our motivation to be good stewards? Is it because we're afraid of God? Is it because we're guilty? Is it because we operate out of fear? What's our motivation? Here's the motivation for giving. It stems from a proper view of God. 
the third servant did not have a proper view of his master. And in this story, the master represents God the Father. So having a proper view of God is where stewardship really starts as far as motivation. So what do we need to know about God? What's a proper view of God in relation to stewardship? Let me just give you a few things. Here's the first one. It's the most important thing in stewardship. Everything that you have, your breath, your life, your talents, your money, your time, your family, your job, your crops, your investments, your IRAs, your retirements, your stocks, your bonds, everything that you have, God owns. God is the owner of everything. We do not literally own anything. Everything belongs to God. So it starts with an understanding that we own nothing. God has given us these things. He's entrusted us with these things to be stewards of what he already owns. There's a great little book that I encourage all of you to get your hands on. It's called The Treasure Principle. It's the best little book on stewardship that I found. It's by Randy Alcorn. It's called The Treasure Principle, and and he gives some great principles on giving. I'm just going to highlight them for you. I don't have time to to give you details on the whole book, but he's, he's got some great statements here on stewardship and understanding God and who God is. Here's the first thing he said. God owns everything. I'm his money manager. God owns everything. Number two, my heart always goes where I put God's money. Number three, heaven not earth, is my home. Number four, giving is the only antidote to materialism. He calls it affluenza. You've heard of influenza? What's influenza? The flu. Affluenza. Being affluent. We're, we, we've been plagued with this bug in America, being materialistic and having too much. He calls it the disease of affluenza. And then the last one he says is, God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. And his overall theme is this, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead by storing up treasures in heaven. So motivation number one is, we need to understand God owns everything. Motivation number two is that we don't serve God out of fear. We don't serve God out of guilt. We don't worship and give back to God out of obligation. We do it out of joy. We do it out of gratitude. We do it because God is first given to us in Christ. And so we'll look at this in more detail next week, what, what God talks about being a cheerful giver, but we do it out of, out of joy, out of love, not out of compulsion. Another thing we need to understand, too, is the question you may be asking yourself this morning is how am I doing at using these things that God has given me? Am I like the first two servants or am I like the third servant? So number one, an illustration of stewardship, the parable of the talents. Number two, the motivation for stewardship. But number three, let's get real practical, the practice of stewardship. We're going to look today at two primary areas of the practice of stewardship. Next week, we'll look at the third area in more detail. But here's just the two areas today. How can you and I be a steward, number one, of our time, Because all of us have the same amount of time, don't we? We've all been given 24 hours in a day. And number two, how can we be a steward of the talents, gifts, abilities that God has given us? So our time and our talents. And I don't mean that the Greek word talent, $300,000. I mean that literally the way we understand it, our, our talents, our gifts. 
So let's first of all look at our time. Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Paul says, make the best use of the time. In the original language there, it's got a different word for time that we often don't understand in our English translations. It's kairos. It's a special God-appointed time that you and I are to take advantage of. And literally it says, redeem the time, buy up the time. How many of you guys are coupon shoppers? You're always looking for coupons, you're looking for the best deals, you're always looking for sales, you've got your eyes out for the best way to make, to, to, to save a buck, and maybe you've got the Gas Buddy app on your phone and you're driving around trying to find the best place that has gas. You may drive to Fort Morgan to get a better price than here because you want to save gas. Coupons. We're, we're always trying to find the best deal. That's what Paul's saying here. It's the same word. Be that diligent in your time. Be on the lookout, the way you'd hunt for a coupon, the way you'd hunt for a deal, about your time. You know, it's interesting about time. Colossians 4, 5 says this. Conduct yourself wisely toward outsiders, making the most of, or making the best use of the time. In both those passages, Paul says, number one, the days are evil. That's why we make the best use of our time. And number two, evangelism, the way you act towards outsiders. So let me ask you a question. In the way that you're using your time, is it for evangelistic purposes in sharing the gospel, advancing the gospel, and is it an urgency in that in light of the days are evil? Why do we make the best use of our time? Paul says the days are evil. We live in an evil age. There's an urgency to share the gospel and to live our lives in a way that glorifies God. Now, we need to make sure that we're not legalistic about this. We want to root everything back in the gospel. Remember last week, advancing the gospel. Everything's rooted back in the gospel. Everything's rooted back into grace. So why do we, why do we make the best use of our time? Why can we do that? Well, you have to follow Paul's flow of thought because in Ephesians chapter 5, he starts in verse 1. Ephesians 5, 1 through 2, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ has loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So, Paul says, imitate God. Be like God. Act like God. How can you do that? Because Christ died on the cross to give us the ability to do that. And what is God calling us to do? To make the best use of our time. So let me just ask you this morning, how's your time management going? Let me address something that I think is a time zapper. And a lot of you can probably um, relate to this. Social media. I'm sometimes on Facebook, and I'm not here to be legalistic against Facebook because I'm on Facebook, but how often do we sit mindlessly in front of Facebook sit mindlessly in front of the television, sit mindlessly in front of the internet, sit mindlessly in front of a video game, wasting precious time doing absolutely nothing. And let me just say this about Facebook. Most people don't care. I know they like your things on there, and I think sometimes Facebook is good, but I'm just wondering, and again, I'm not against Facebook. Let's not be legalistic here. Facebook's a good thing if used appropriately, but I wonder how much time do we really waste 
doing things that don't advance the gospel, don't live in the urgency that the days are evil, and don't live in a way that glorifies God. How do we waste our time? Are we being good stewards of the time that God has given us? Are we making adjustments in our life to say, God is giving me this precious gift of time. How am I being his, his management of time? Okay, let's look at the second issue this morning. Your talents, your gifts. Let's turn to 1 Peter in your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 4. And I just want to address briefly here what 1 Peter has to say about gifts. Because I think, to me, this is one of the most important passages of Scripture about gifts. Spiritual gifts. Abilities. And if you're a Christian here this morning, God has granted you a gift. A spiritual gift. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. And it's interesting what Peter does here. Before I start this passage of Scripture, let me just give you something on spiritual gifts for a moment. Nowhere in the Bible do the Scripture writers tell you to discover your spiritual gift. They assume you already have it, and you should be using it. Okay, so Peter and Paul, when they talk about spiritual gifts, they're making the assumption, you've got one if you're a Christian. The job is that you need to be using it. So let's read 1 Peter 4, 10-11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards, there's the terminology there, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So Paul just, or Peter here, number one, says, you've received a gift from God, use it. Use your gift. And he gives two broad categories of giftings here. Now you can go in Ephesians, you can go in Romans, and you can go in 1 Corinthians and find a more detailed list of gifts. But Peter makes it real simple. There's two big overarching categories of giftings in the Bible. There's the speaking gifts, whoever speaks, and there are the serving gifts. What are the speaking gifts? The speaking gifts are kind of like what I'm doing right here. Those that are preachers, those that are teachers, those that are counselors, those that are exhorters. God has gifted you with the ability to, to communicate verbally in a way, and it doesn't necessarily have to be in front of a large audience. It just could be that God has given you the ability to speak in other people's lives and serve them by speaking. The other gifting, the broad category, is by serving. Most people probably are in the second gifting, not the speaking, but the serving. This includes all types of things that you and I don't even think about half the time. Serving, the behind the scenes, serving God. You're not up front, you're not speaking, but you're serving. Those two big things. And notice what he says. You're using it to serve one another as God's stewards of his varied grace. The word varied there is an interesting word. It was the word used back in the Old Testament to describe Joseph's coat of many colors. It's this idea that God in his sovereignty and God in his grace and God in his beauty has gifted all of us in the church with various different gifts. 
And there's this diversity of gifting in the church, and it's a beautiful thing when everybody's operating within their giftedness because not everybody has the same gift. And so we put God's grace on display, this multifaceted grace upon display, when we serve each other with the gifts that God has given us. Now, if I just stopped here and said, okay, you've got a spiritual gift, you better use it. How would you feel if I said that to you this morning? Well, great, Sean. I don't know what my spiritual gift is. You've just guilted me. Or you said, I've got, I know what my spiritual gift is, and I can go out and do it. You're either going to walk out of here inflated with pride because I can go do my spiritual gift, or you're going to walk out of here feeling defeated like, I don't know what my spiritual gift is, and, and I'm defeated, I'm deflated. So I'm not going to leave you with that. I'm not going to say, go out and use your spiritual gifts, have fun, do your best, come back next week and tell me how that worked for you. Here's the last thing I want us to look at. Because this is the most important thing when it comes to gifting, when it comes to stewardship, when it comes to the gospel. Here's the issue. The fourth thing is the power. The power for stewardship. And I'm going to stretch your thinking for just a moment here on power. Let me ask you a very simple question. On the cross, what did Jesus do? What was that? He died. He died on the cross for our sins. What did he do in the dying of the cross? Did he purchase our forgiveness? Yes. Did he purchase for us eternal life? Yes. Did he purchase for us the ability to have a relationship with God in heaven? Yes. Did he forgive our sins? Yes. Did he propitiate God's wrath? Yes. Did he redeem us? Yes. All those things are true and wonderful, but I want to tell you something, and maybe you've never thought about this before. Jesus Christ also on the cross purchased your spiritual gift. Have you thought about that? Not only your salvation did he purchase, but he purchased the power of your sanctification, and your sanctification includes your use of spiritual gifts. So on the cross, Christ purchased for you your spiritual gift. Now, now where do you see that, Sean, in the Bible? Romans 8.32. Paul says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. In other words, God gave Jesus Christ for us on the cross, didn't spare him. How will he not also with him graciously give us what? All things. The all things that God gives us in our salvation are related to the cross. And it's not just our salvation from sin. It's not just the forgiveness of our sins. It's not just a place in heaven. But the cross also purchased yours and mine's spiritual gift. And so here's the issue when it comes to gifting. When you and I don't use our gifts, when we downplay our gifts, when we don't discover our gifts, what we're really saying is that the cross is not that big of a deal because Christ paid for it and I'm not willing to do what God has called me to do with my gifting. So there's great joy to know that the spiritual gift you have, God has purchased for you on the cross and given to you in Christ. And notice what else that second half of that verse says in Peter. Notice the second half. Look at verse 11. Whoever speaks, okay, the speaking gift, as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves, that's the second big, big broad category, as one who serves, now notice here, by the strength that God supplies. So how can you serve? In your own strength? In your own power? No, by the strength that God supplies. <coughs> Excuse me. That word supplies there. When God supplies the strength, it, in the original language, it was, it was the idea of a benefactor. 
a rich guy. <coughs> and this rich guy would put up all the costs necessary for a Greek tragedy or Greek play or a Greek chorus. In our day, it would be like this. you got this big movie mogul who's going to put up all this money to make a blockbuster film, and he foots the bill and gives the movie producer and gives the director and gives the cast everything they need to make the $150 million movie. He foots the bill. It later came to mean that God is the one that supplies everything that we need. So when it comes to spiritual gifts, when it comes to being able to use the talents that God has given you, the giftings that God has given you, God gives you that through his strength, the strength that he supplies. Listen to 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power has granted to us, what? All things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So what is God's power granted to us? Everything that we need. Everything we need to live the Christian life, God's power has been granted to us to do that. And notice what else Peter says here. What's the whole bottom line in how we serve each other? Why should we be stewards of the gifts that God has given us? Why should we be using the power that God has given us? Look at what he says right there. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So let me ask you a question. In the context of this passage of Scripture, what glorifies God when a church or when an individual Christian uses his and her spiritual gifts to serve one another? It glorifies God. It brings God glory to be good stewards of the gifts he's given us. So let's look at the flip side. What doesn't glorify God? What doesn't bring glory and majesty to God? It's when a church or an individual Christian says, I'm not going to serve. I'm not going to use my gifts. I'm not going to discover my gifts. I'm not going to serve the body of Christ. I'm not going to serve the world. I'm just going to kind of hoard what I have. Peter's saying that does not bring glory to Christ. Now, I want to give one final example here, and it comes from Jesus himself. So turn to one other place in the Bible, John 13, 1 through 5. And in John 13, this next to the cross, obviously the cross is the greatest example of service that Christ ever did. But I think next to the cross and leading up to the cross, this one act of service, of sacrificial stewardship and service, really shows us the example of what God is calling us to do as his people. John 13, 1 through 5. John 13, 1 through 5. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus trades in his kingly robe for a slave's towel. Here's the king of the universe. I don't, th I don't know if we can quite catch, catch, catch what this is all about here. Here is the king of the universe. 
God in the flesh. And he puts on this towel that was only reserved for slaves. Not Jewish slaves, mind you, Gentile slaves. This was the lowest of low that any person could assume in that culture. Jesus says, I'm going to assume the lowest form of slavery next to the cross, and I'm going to bend down and wipe and clean some smelly disciples' dusty feet. And notice the text does not say that when he got to Judas, he skipped over Judas. Jesus served and loved and gave himself humbly. Why did he do this? If you go down and look at verse 15, notice what it says down in verse 15. For I have given you an example or, or a pattern, can also be the word used there, that you should also do as I've done to you. Then verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus said, I've set the example. I want you to be a steward I want you to sacrifice. I want you to serve. Serve each other. Whether that's serving with your time or serving with your talents, serve each other with the grace that God provides. Now, maybe you're feeling like right now that maybe this whole idea of sacrifice and service and stewardship, you're feeling a little scared. Maybe you're feeling a little anxiety this morning. Maybe you're feeling a little guilty, like, my goodness, I'm not a good time manager, and my goodness, I'm not using my gifts, and Sean's just beating me up here from the pulpit, and I'm going out of this place feeling like I've been beat up when I came to church. And and that's the last thing I want to do. I don't want you to leave this place feeling like, you better do a better job of getting your act together. That's not what I want to leave with you this morning. I want to leave you this morning with hope in the gospel. So here's the question. Why can we do anything that we can do in the Christian life? Because of Christ and what Christ did. You know, there's a wonderful passage of Scripture that brings in this whole idea of serving God and Jesus serving us. How can we serve each other? Because Christ served us. It's in Mark. Mark 10, 42-45. It kind of synthesizes these two things. Our sacrificial service as stewards and Jesus' work on the cross. Jesus called to them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Okay? You're different, disciples. If you're a follower of Christ, it's going to be different among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus is saying, You guys have a different paradigm. You're to be serving. You're to be last. You're to be thinking of the needs of others. You're to be being good stewards of what God has given you. Why? Look at verse 42 or verse 45. For even the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came not to be, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, how can we serve? And why should we serve? Is it so we earn brownie points with God? Is it out of guilt? Is it out of fear? Is it out of obligation? Is it out of duty? Is it because I have to? Well, there's a sense that, you know, we're commanded to do that, but the ultimate reason why is because Christ came and served us. Christ came and died for us. Christ poured out his Holy Spirit in us. Christ purchased our spiritual gift on the cross. Christ empowers us. It all comes back to what Jesus can do in yours and mine's life to do what he's called us to do because of the cross. 
you know, God wants to do something amazing over the next three years. And I was just thinking this week, it's a God-sized task to pay off $1.5 million in three years. But let me give you just a little bit of math. And I wasn't in the shower, Brent, when this came to me, but I think I was a, something happened. If 200 people, which is even less than what this church is, if 200 people would commit to give $50 a week for three years, that's $1.56 million. That's the exact amount of what our debt is. If just 200 people said, I'm going to give 50 bucks a week for three years, we'd have the debt paid down. Now you may think, well, that's, that's pie in the sky, Sean. That, that's, that's, I understand that. But I'm trying to make it down into a distilled idea to say, you know what? It doesn't, I don't have to give $800,000 to this debt. It's not equal gifts, it's equal sacrifice. And I'm thinking about, well, what could you sacrifice? 50 bucks a week, or maybe 20 bucks a week. How much do we spend, really, on things worthwhile? When you think about 50 bucks a week, when our family goes to Village Inn after church, you know how much it is with tax and tip? It's about 50 bucks. And we could say, you know what, we're not going to go to Village Inn this week. We're going to give our money to the church. And you're starting to think about ways that we can be good stewards of what God has given us. And I'm not saying that everybody has to do that. Again, you, you're on this journey yourself of praying what God would lead you to do. But I wanted to give you some tangible numbers to say, yes, it's a God-sized thing for $1.5 million to be paid off in three years. But when you really think about it, it's not that big of a deal because God can do great things. What I want to do is I want to leave you with two passages of Scripture. And these two passages of Scripture are great promises for you and me when it comes to living a life of stewardship. How can we do it? How can we live a life of stewardship? Here's the first passage of Scripture. Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Do you realize God can do more than you can even think? Whatever you can dream up, the greatest dream you can dream for your life or for this church or for the nations, whatever dream you can think of, God's got it beat according to his power. And so when you think about what God is calling you to do, and again, I want you to pray. I'm never going to stand up here and twist your arm and tell you and minister guilt. All I'm asking you is to seek the face of the Lord. But think about this promise. God can do more than what you think. And you may be thinking, man, I don't know what, what God can do with me. God can do more than what you can think. I don't know how I can serve God. I don't know how I can be an evangelist for God. I don't know how I can be a good steward of, of my time for God. Yeah, you may not understand that. But guess what? You've got a God that's powerful that can work in your life to do more than you can ask or think. And not only that, Hebrews 13, 20 through 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. Okay, what? The, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our great shepherd. What does he do? Verse 21, he will equip you. Don't you love that? He will equip you with what? Everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Not only does God have the power to do more than you can think, but God's going to equip you to do it. 
He will equip you with everything good to do according to his will. So we're not left to our own devices. The gospel says God gives us the power to do what he's called us to do. And it's not because we're so great. It's because he's so great. We are weak. We are frail. We are feeble. But God is good and God is powerful. And he gives us the grace to be able to do what he's calling us to do. And so as we think about approaching our celebration Sunday in a few weeks, and as you as a family or you as an individual are, are in the process of prayer. And last week, that's all I asked you to do is begin praying. That's all I can ask you to do is to pray. What, how would God lead you? How, how would you, God lead you to participate? If you seek the Lord in prayer and be pray, praying these things, God, how can you equip me? God, what power do you want to show on my life? Spend time in prayer. And as we come in a few weeks, I just pray that you've heard from the Lord. You've spent time in prayer and God has met you where you are and that you're just obedient to what God's calling you to do. That's all I can ask, is that you're obedient. Now, I was also thinking about another number this week. Our annual budget, our operating budget as a church, is $360,000. That's the operating budget. That goes for salaries, that goes for missions, that goes for ministries, that goes for um, curriculum, that goes to heat and cool the building, that goes for utilities, that goes for postage. Everything that we have to operate this church $360,000 a year. And thankfully, over the past many years, we've made budget and you've been faithful at giving and your tithes and offerings go to pay for the operating budget of this church, which is number one, to advance the gospel. The building mortgage payment is $10,000 a month. Now multiply 10,000 times 12, and those of you that are good at math, what is that? It's $120,000 a year we pay on the mortgage. Now, what happens if we don't have a building fund? That $120,000 comes from the general operating budget. That's a third of your budget. So you have to ask the question, okay, what third of our church are we going to cut? A third of the salaries? A third of the missions? A third of the ministries? A third of this? A third of that? I don't think anybody wants to cut what we're doing right now. So it's important that we have a separate fund that's given to building so that we can do what God has called us to do, which is advancing the gospel. And so like I said last week, all I can do is ask you to pray. Spend time on your knees in prayer. That's all I can ask you to do. We have opportunities to you to take advantage of that. Next Sunday night, we're going to have a prayer time, and we're going to kind of go around the building and pray for ministries and pray for missions and pray for the things that God has called us to do. It's, in my mind, it's never, and like I said last week, this building can burn to the ground, and we'd still be a church. And we can do everything that God has called us to do without a building. We can do missions, we can do ministry, we can do evangelism, we can do it without a building. We can do all that. But in God's grace, he's given us a building. And so we're thankful for what he's given us, and we want to be good stewards of what he's given us. And so what I'm asking us to do is just be prayerful. That's all I can ask you to do is pray. Pray those two things. God, you're powerful to do more than, you, than I can even think. And number two, God, I know you're going to equip me. I know you're going to equip me to do what you've called me to do. And that may be different for each person. Remember, it's each according to your ability. You don't have to worry about what the person next to you is giving. You don't have to worry about the, what the person next to you is doing. All you need to worry about is what is God saying to you individually. And that's the only thing you have control over, is how are you going to respond to what God is calling you to do. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning and just spend some time in prayer. And I really just... I want us to focus in on the power that God gives us. He will supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory. We can serve him 
and serve each other by the the power that he supplies, by the strength he supplies. God is able to do far more than we can ask or think according to his power. God, who sent Jesus Christ to die and rise again, will equip us with everything good for his glory. Claim those promises this morning. Just spend some time claiming those promises and spend some time just asking God, God, how would you lead me? How would you lead me to be a good steward of my time, to be a good steward of my talents, and to be a good steward of my treasures? Just spend some time in prayer this morning. Father, I will be the first to admit as I stand before this congregation that the thought of sacrificing above and beyond what we're already giving for another three years when we've been in this since the year 2000 and other churches, 13 years of this, it sometimes gets tiring. It sometimes gets scary. I sometimes get anxious because I Think about my family, unexpected medical expenses, or whatever, Lord. There's, there's fear, and, and, and Lord, I, I'll be the first to admit, as I stand before this congregation, there, there, there's some fear. And I'm sure, Father, that if everybody was honest this morning and we think about what, what you're calling us to do, there's some fear, there's some anxiety. And I want to understand that, Lord, and, but I also, Father, want to understand your power. Because you promise in your word that you can do more than we can ask or think. And I'll be honest with you at times, Father, sometimes my thinking and my imagining is very, very shallow. But you can do way more than what I can even begin to dream of. And Father, you also promise to supply and equip us with everything that we need. What a great promise from your very throne, Father, that you give us grace upon grace to do what you've called us to do. You don't leave us to our own devices. You don't leave us to, to our own thinking and to our own resources, but you, you equip us and you encourage us and you supply us. And you do that so that we will, by grace, be good stewards of what you've called us to do and to serve and to give and to love and to advance the gospel with the grace and the power you give. And so, Father, what a great thing it would be if this entire congregation just took that and owned that and said, I want to be under the power of the gospel to serve and to give and to love and to advance the gospel in an obedient manner. And, Father, it may look different for every one of us, but as long as we're obedient to what you've specifically called us to, that's where we want to be. We want to be obedient. So, Father, give us the grace and the power to be obedient. Lord, I pray that over the next few weeks, this congregation would be on their knees in prayer. They wouldn't take this flippantly. They wouldn't just take this begrudgingly, but they would seriously say, Lord, how are you leading me? Let this be a journey of faith, a journey of prayer, a deep spiritual journey where we truly seek your face. In all things, Father, we want to glorify you. May you receive glory in whatever is done. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.